I desire then that that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and golds or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. <clears throat> Let a woman learn quietly with all submission, submissiveness. Sorry, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. What would you say if I asked you politely to clean my shoes? Bit of a weird question, but you weren't expecting that one coming. Would you do it? I'm not asking for a real answer, don't worry. You don't have to uh, tell me afterwards either. But if I asked you politely to clean your shoes, well, maybe you might do that. What would you do if I told you to clean my shoes? What response would that get, I guess? Now, I'd imagine, actually, if I told you to clean my shoes, you'd be less likely, probably, to clean my shoes than if I asked you politely. Because the issue there is authority. Authority. To what extent can someone tell other people what they can and can't do? And with our question this morning, really, the question is, to what extent can God tell us to do things that we can or can't do? To what extent can God ask us to do things that might go against our own ideas of what we think is right? Now, you might think that that is a strange place to start on the issue of men and women. Uh, Our statement today, you'll see in your notice sheets, is we believe that men and women have different roles in the church and the family, but are absolutely equal. And I want to argue, really, it comes down to this. Does God set the rules, or do we? Do we decide our own purpose, or does God? Now, we believe that the Bible sets out that men and women are made complementary. Now, that's a bit of a strange word. It's got several different meanings, depending on how you spell it. I don't know if you've ever heard about the man who went into a bar and asked for a a J2O, and the man says, well, the man behind the bar goes off and says, well, I'll go, I'll go get one. And uh, the man stood there at the bar by himself and he hears this voice saying, your hair looks very nice. The man looks around and doesn't know what's, what's going on. And then he hears a voice again and he says, oh, and, and you look very attractive, very handsome. There's no one else in the bar. Anyway, the, the barman comes back and he says, there's this voice that kept saying nice things about me. And he says, oh, that's the peanuts. They're complimentary. Apparently, when we do linguistics, if you groan at a pun, apparently that is the right response. That is, uh, that's a positive one. But there's lots of different words, isn't there, to, um, uh, to the word complementary. But what we mean here is that men and women are made to complement each other. That we're made different to help each other. That we're made to go together. It's a bit like apple pie and custard, like bangers and mash, like roast beef. And Yorkshire puddings. They're made for each other, aren't they? And this is literally true when it comes to men and women. I mean, roast beef and roast beef would make a very boring meal, wouldn't it? And the same would be true if it was just men or just women. God has made us differently for a purpose. His purposes. If you like, he's written the song and he's given us different parts, like we were singing. 
to make the song more beautiful, to make it sound right. But what we're going to argue this morning is, although we're made differently, this in no way negates the fact that we're equal before God. Men and women are absolutely and totally equal before our Creator. But we're going to explore his purposes for us this morning. And our first point is God's purpose for the family. And for that, we're going to focus on that passage in Ephesians 5. So you might find it helpful to have it uh, open in front of you. In Ephesians chapter 5, 18 uh, to 6, verse 4. And firstly, under this, we're going to look at the idea of marriage. What's God's purpose for marriage? Well, what we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is that one of God's big purposes for marriage is that it's made as a living parable of Christ and his church. Uh, Do you see that there in in chapter 5? So, uh, wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord, um, even as Christ is the head of the church. Um, So, verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you see there that it's been... We've got a living parable of the relationship between Christ and his church. And it isn't that God is using Christ and his church as an illustration for marriage. Okay? It's not using Christ and the church as an illustration for marriage. It's the other way round. God made, uh, had his relationship with Christ and the church decided first. So actually, God invented marriage as an illustration of Christ and his church. Not the other way round, if you like. Do you get that? So God had his idea of Christ and the church first and then invented marriage to show us what that was like. Because he could have given us a world without marriage, couldn't he? Uh, He could have given us a world where um, it was just one species, where we just sort of split in half or uh, where it was just men or just women. But God gave us a world with marriage and he gave us it so that there was a picture of what Christ and the church are like, how they relate to one another. So how do they relate to one another? Uh, there in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, the husband plays the role of Christ. And by that, really, what we want to say is that the husband's role is to sacrificially lead. To sacrificially lead. Because the model is Christ for the husband. Christ is our head, isn't he? He's our leader. He's in charge. And we submit to him, don't we, as the church. But also we see in that, that the way that he led was that he sacrificed himself for the church. He died on the cross. That was the showing of his leadership, of his love, of his sacrificial leadership. And remember what he did in his life. What sort of a leader was he then? He was a leader who bent down and washed his disciples' feet. That was the kind of leader he was. And Piper in his book, This Momentary Marriage, which I'll refer to in a few minutes, he calls this sort of leadership lion-hearted and lamb-like. Lion-hearted and lamb-like. It's got the character of Christ, the great lion of Judah, the ruler. But it's also Christ, the sacrificial lamb. Now, that's the role of the husband. But women, this morning, can I let you in on a secret? Men find this hard. Men find this hard. Because for men, I think some of the big temptations that we have, I know women experience these as well, but especially for men, there are temptations to laziness, And there are temptations to laxness. As a man, all the way through my life, you get this refrain all the way through, I don't know if men have found this, you get told to step up to the plate, or words to that effect. 
I've never heard that said to a woman. It always seems to be said to men, you step up, you need to step up. And I think the reason that men hear that so much is that it doesn't come naturally to us, for most men, I think. I think most men find it easier to let someone else make the decisions for a bit of an, an easier life. So we're tempted away from the idea of leadership. But we're tempted away from the idea of sacrificial leadership as well. We're tempted to be lazy instead. And I know women are too. But imagine a home setting. Uh, it could be your own, could be your parents, could be uh, something that you see on the TV. Now there's a, a married couple. One of them has got their feet up watching the television and one of them's doing the vacuuming. Which one's which? That should show you really that as, as men we, we're tempted to, to laziness, to not pulling our weight in the home. So being a sacrificial leader, actually women, men find this hard. And it's something that all men need to work on, whatever context we lead in. It involves taking charge. And it means taking charge to make sure that the team win, if you like. Not that we get our own way. It means loving our family, loving our wives. Loving the people that we lead in whatever situation, so that we all win, so that the team win. And men find this especially hard. So, women, if you're married, how can you help your husband lead sacrificially? It would be a good question to think through this morning. Men, I know you know that you have to do this, and I'm not going to tell you to do it, because we, we, we get bombarded with this all the time. And there's a certain element of that we know that we just need to get on with it. But how can you, if you're married, how can you lead your wife into more godliness? How can you lead sacrificially? So that's the role of the husband. What's the role of the wife? Well, the role of the wife is to uh, play the part of the church. And by that, the, the husband is to sacrificially lead, and the wife is to lovingly submit. And the model there is the church. The church accepts Christ's leadership and submits to it. Let's Christ have uh, his way in that way. Now men, can I let you in on a secret? Women find this hard. Especially when we're not stepping up to the plate. When we're not taking the lead. I think it's probably true that most women find it easier to take the lead if the husband isn't doing it. To just make the decisions and just get on with it because it's easier. I think also women find it frustrating for them when we don't listen to them as we lead. So when we do take the lead and do do things, leading actually involves listening. Now it doesn't always involve doing what you hear, but it does always involve giving it a hearing. And I think women find it easier to just get on with things sometimes and end up resenting their husbands for not taking the lead. Because it's hard to sit back, isn't it, and, and just let your husband get on with it if he's not leading well. Especially since in a large proportion of marriages, actually your wife will be the more organised one, the smarter one, the one perhaps who's more committed to the gospel. It's hard, isn't it, to sit back and let your husband lead. But I think that's a misunderstanding of what the word submission really means. Submission does not equal silence. Not in a marriage, not in, in other contexts either. A woman should have a voice in the relationship. God has given wives to help their husbands. So you're to help them. Submission does not mean passively watching as your <coughs> husband makes a train wreck of everything. Piper puts this really well, which is why I, I brought this book with me. 
This is called This Momentary Marriage. There are some bits at the end which I wouldn't quite agree with, but his sections on husbands and wives uh, are brilliant. It's quite an extended reading, but it's worth it. Uh, He gives a definition of submission. He said, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honour and affirm her husband's leadership and help him carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in a relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure that the family works. But submission does not follow a husband into sin. What then does submission say in such a situation? What does submission say to a husband who is leading a wife into sin? It says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can joyfully respond to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honour your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. The reason that I say submission is a disposition and an inclination to follow a husband's lead is because there will be times in a Christian marriage when the most submissive wife, with good reason, will hesitate at a husband's decision. It may look unwise to her. Suppose it's Noel and I, that's his wife. At the moment, Noel could express her submission like this. Johnny, I assume that's what she calls him. Um, I don't think anyone else can. Um, I know you've thought this through a lot. And I love it when you take the initiative to plan for us and take the responsibility like this. But I don't really have peace about this decision. And I think we need to talk about it some more. Could we maybe tonight sometime? The reason that this, uh, it, that it is a kind of biblical submission is because husbands, unlike Christ, are fallible and ought to admit it. Because husbands ought to want their wives to be excited about the family decisions since Christ wants the church to be excited about following his decisions and not just following begrudgingly. Because the way Noel expressed her misgivings communicated clearly that she endorses my leadership and affirms me in my role as head. And because she has made it clear from the beginning in our marriage that if, when things have done and the talking is done, we still disagree, she will defer to her husband's decision. I just thought that's really helped me in my marriage, just to think that thing through and hear the voice of his wife explain how she submits when actually he's doing things that she's not comfortable with, that she's not happy with. It doesn't mean silence, uh, but it does mean, in the end, if if the husband goes along with something, it does mean uh, deferring to your husband's uh, will. So it's not about being a doormat, but neither is it about being in the driver's seat as a wife. We're human beings, and husbands will lead imperfectly, and wives will submit imperfectly, and it will be hard for both sides. Actually, we need God's grace, don't we? We need forgiveness uh, in these situations, that we don't live out this living parable as well as we should do. So that's marriage uh, in that. And then, more briefly, parenthood uh, under the same title. So chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. I'll read them to you again. (coughs) Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What we see here is that biblically, fathers are to take the lead in parenthood. Now, if you're not a father here this morning, um, don't worry about that. It gives you a good opportunity to learn how to pray for fathers in the church and prepare 
uh, if that's something that's coming. Same is true of, of marriage as well. But fathers are to take the lead in parenthood. Now, husband and wives are a team, but the father there is the boss of the team. And it means that men are to take an active role in the lives of their children. <laughs> Parenting is not something that we're supposed to delegate to our wives. And if you think about it, throughout scripture, all the way through, men are held responsible for how their children grow up. Think about Eli with his sons that were rebellious. Samuel with his sons that were rebellious. David with his sons that were rebellious. You hear very little about their wives, do you? You don't really hear about Samuel or Eli's wife at all. It's it's given to the men. They are responsible. And that's just within a hundred years of Bible history, those three men. And the book of Proverbs, well think about it, that's the advice of a father to a son. Men are supposed to take an active role in the lives of their children. It's actually our society that says to men to butt out and leave it to the women. When we talk about this, we're not talking about returning to the 1950s. That's not what a biblical submission is. That's not what this gender uh, roles thing is. There is no golden era. We've always messed it up in one way or another. In that we ape our society. We, we copy them. And it's hard to see how we copy them. Because we see it through the cultural lenses that we've got on. So men are to be involved in the lives of their children. Men are to take the lead in the home. And they're to do that spiritually too. Men, if you have children, you're responsible for your children's upbringing. Spiritually. What are you doing to bring them up in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord? Now this is harder once they leave the home uh, and go their own way. New family units are formed and I think that relationship is a bit different. But we can pray for our children even if they're not at home. We can sacrificially love them in all the ways that we can. And wives can help their husbands to do that. So this is God's purpose for the family. And we see that far from being an oppressive thing, actually this is a beautiful thing, it's a lovely thing that God has given us. We do it imperfectly and we need grace, we need forgiveness. But that's God's purpose for the family. But secondly, what's God's purpose for God's family? Well for this we're going to look at that passage in 1 Timothy. Uh, chapter 2. And I want to use a long word here, but I've used it before, but I'll explain it. I want to argue here that God's family are an eschatological, I can't even say it, <laughs> eschatological community. By that I mean that the church is, is looking to the end, if you like. It's a break-in of the, the new creation that's coming into this world. So if you like, the church is to be the new Eden in the old world. And the new Eden is modelled on the old Eden. That's why we see the pattern of what God wants. And that's why Paul refers back to Genesis uh, here in this passage. So if you have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So you see there, he's referring back to the original creation. He's referring right back to Genesis to explain why he's making these commandments about women and men. The old Eden, you see, was messed up by a reversal of the created order. God created man first, and then woman as his helper or partner in the work. They were to rule over the world together under God's authority. So if you like, the order went God, man, woman, or wife in certain so God, man, woman, animal. 
That was the, the order that they had. But here we see that a snake tells Eve, doesn't she, uh, doesn't he, to, to, to sin. So you have the order of animal, uh, woman, man, God. It's completely flipped on its head. And I think this is why Paul refers to it here. Because it's not incidental or accidental that Eve sinned first. Okay? So again, think about it. It could have been that Adam sinned, couldn't it, first. That would sort of fit. But actually in history, the way that God worked it out and the way that it worked out in practice is that Eve sinned first. And that made that order go upside down. So it's not by accident that that happened. Eve then gave Adam, didn't she, uh, to eat of the, the food. And really what it's showing us is that Eve started to lead Adam, if you like. Eve starts calling the shots and gives the food to Adam. So instead of submitting to her husband, she submits to an animal. And Adam, instead of leading his wife, is being led. And it's a mess up of the created order. But what Paul is getting at here is that when we get the church, when we get the new creation coming in, it's a restoration of the order from the first creation. It involves a recreation of that order. So if the church is to be an outpost of the new Eden, then it needs to reflect the order as it should have been. So let me just pause here. Because I know that's, gonna, that's very controversial really to say. Let me say a few things that Paul is not saying by this. Paul is not saying that all women are easily led or naive. That's the way some people have, have read this in the past. They say, right, Eve was deceived first, so she can't be allowed to teach because she's easily led and naive. I think that's completely untrue. Uh, I know as many, as many gullible men as I do gullible women... Uh, it's nothing to do with a disposition to, to gullibility or naivety. Paul is also not saying here that women cannot teach. I'll say that again. Paul is not saying here that women cannot teach. Women in the Bible are commanded to teach. So if you look on the back of your sheets, you'll see there there's Titus uh, chapter 2 verse 3. and uh, 3 to 5. This is what it says. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Do you see that? Women, are, they are actually commanded to teach. In fact, all believers are commanded to teach, aren't they? Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. All of us as believers are to learn from one another in some way. The issue is not whether women should teach. The question is who women should teach. And the answer from our, our passage and looking at the rest of the Bible is that they are to teach other women. They're to teach other women. That's what we saw in Titus. They're there teaching your younger women to love their husbands. They're teaching what is good to them. And I want to argue that a, a ministry teaching women is just as valuable as a ministry teaching men. If we say that that's not a worthwhile ministry, what, do we, what are we saying about women? Are they not worth teaching? Actually, no, we believe in the equality of men and women. So a ministry to women is just as valuable as a women to man, uh, as a ministry to men. Now, who are the women that it's talking about here with the older women? Well, there's some debate over the age exactly, but it's normally either 30 or 40 that the boundary is, is drawn. 
So if you're a woman here this morning and you're over the age of 30 or 40, biblically, I'm sorry to share this with you, but biblically you're an older woman. Sorry. But it means that you should be involved in teaching. If you are over 30, if you're over 40, maybe a bit leeway in between, you should be involved in teaching younger women if you're following the commands that we see in Titus. Um, so actually, I don't want to tell you this morning, women, to stop teaching. I want to tell you to get teaching if you're not doing that. God has given you gifts. We saw that uh, a couple of weeks ago. It would be a shame to waste them. God doesn't want you to waste them. He wants them, you to use them. But the context for that is teaching uh, younger women, or other women as well. It's interesting in our passage in Titus that uh, Titus is not commanded to teach younger women. He's commanded to teach older women, older men, younger men, but not younger women. And I think the reason for that is that actually it's a difficult ministry for a, a young pastor to have, to teach younger women. It causes all sorts of, of problems and issues, uh, certainly in the house-to-house thing. So, for example, as I've been going house-to-house and seeing people, I've not been seeing the, the young single women. And I think that's biblical, because actually there are older women to go and teach and, and disciple younger women. So he's not saying that women shouldn't teach. In fact, women should teach. And if you're not teaching, you should think how you can. The commandment is saying, really, that women should not teach mixed congregations. That's what it's saying. So clearly that excludes what I'm doing this morning. As I look out, there are men and women in front of me. Um, The lines are a little bit fuzzier after that. Uh, Every church makes up its mind a little bit differently as to where exactly the lines are drawn. We have Sarah teaching Sunday school this morning. I think that's okay. Uh, biblically um, would teach children. I think that includes men and women. We've got uh, Caroline speaking at Stirrup. Uh, It's a women-only event. So there are contexts in which that's possible. (coughs) So there are contexts in which we can do it, but not mixed congregations. That's really what it's talking about. Okay, what else isn't it saying? Well, it's not saying that women cannot pray in public. Again, have a look on the back of your sheet, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, this is often, it's got, it's got all sorts of cans of worms in it, but we'll just look at the one thing. It says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Now, that passage in 1 Corinthians is in the context of the church. It's talking about church order. And it assumes there that women are praying in that uh, setting. But here it's saying that they must have a head covering, which is... Let's leave that for now. You can put it on a a blue slip if you like, if you want to ask a question about that. But it's assuming that women are praying uh, in those settings. Um, So there are people who say that women shouldn't pray up front, and they go to the passage that we looked at before in 1 Timothy. Uh, So 1 Timothy 8, uh, 2 verse 8, sorry. And you notice there was a lot about what the women should do, but it's easy to miss that actually there's an instruction to men at the beginning. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise, also the women, dot, dot, dot. So do you see there's a command for men there to pray, to lift up holy hands? So that's how they used to pray in those days with their hands up in the air. Um, and that's the only command that's given to the men here. Now, I want to argue that doesn't mean that it means that only men can pray up the front. Okay, I don't want to say that that's what it means. Some people take it to mean that. But I want to ask the blokes then, if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean for us? 
Because I think it means that we should be leading in prayer. If you like, we're to put the ladies to shame by the amount that we pray. We're to be prayer leaders. This is the command that the men are given. Get on with praying. Don't get on with fighting and trying to fix it. So that's what men generally do, isn't it? As a, as a bloke, I think I can say that. You know, when something goes wrong or something starts happening, we don't get into fight or flight. Generally, we get into fight or fix it mode, don't we? So when, uh, when something goes wrong, what can I do to fix it? Or what can I do to get out of this? But instead of using our hands to fix things and fight, he's saying use your hands to pray. Put them up in the air to pray. I don't think he's saying that you have to put your hands in the air, but he's saying put your hands to better use. So married women, how can you help your husband be a prayer leader in your family? Men, how can you do this? We don't just want to be telling ladies what to do as we do this, don't we? That's not what it's about. We need to be do, do what we're told as well to submit to Christ. So we are to... Um, it doesn't say that women can't pray up front, but it does mean men, we should be leading in prayer. We should be uh, praying lots more than we do. The last thing... Sorry, no, two last things that it's not saying. Uh, it's not saying that a woman should not ever exercise authority over a man. That's not what he's saying in in one two. It's not saying a woman should never exercise authority over a man. Context is key here, isn't it? Because actually the context is the church. So he's talking about church leadership. The context before was in a marriage. So I think it's okay that actually, if you think about it at the moment, our prime minister is a woman. uh, Our sovereign, the queen, is a woman. That's okay. I think that's fine. Uh, Police women. I think if if you're a woman, you want to be a police woman... That's fine. Now, that, there's been a big debate about this in America because the same guy who wrote this also said that women shouldn't be police women. But I don't think that that's what this passage is saying. So women can be police women. W- women can be lollipop ladies. They make people submit. They make people stop if they put your, their sign out. We're not to jump on some sort of misogynist bandwagon if society does. And it's happened in the past. So... Um, I was going to check this was the right person. John Owen uh, wrote a book called The Monstrous Regiment of Women. John Knox. John Knox. That's it. Wrong John. I, I did have a note that didn't sound right. It was John Owen. John Knox, the Scottish guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he wrote a book um, called the Mon- or a, a pamphlet called The Monstrous Regiment of Women Against the Queen of Scotland uh, because she was uh, against the Protestants. It was unfortunate then in the twist of history that Elizabeth I came to power in England uh, and suddenly his, his pamphlet didn't look so good. We're not to just jump on bandwagons and try and make the Bible say what we might think we want it to say. We're to look carefully at what it says. So it's okay that women have authority over men in other contexts. And it's not saying women can't speak at all. Sometimes you hear that and in some brethren churches that happens that women aren't allowed to speak. Uh, but on the back of our uh, passage, this is where they get it from, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. It says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So that makes it sound like, actually, right, Everybody should be, every woman should be silent. And, you know, we'd have to wait until tea and coffee time before any woman could speak. But it seems to be in the context, if you read it, of, of this messed up church in Corinth, 
uh, that the women seem to be disturbing the service by asking questions. So it'd be like someone heckling in the service uh, and, and shouting out questions. And it's possible in their, their particular context that was because women weren't as educated uh, in those days as men, so they had more questions as to what was happening. Um, but I want to say that it's not saying that women can't speak at all. I don't think that's what it's trying to say. It's rather saying that they should ask their husbands at home if they have a question, rather than interrupt the service uh, by asking questions in the meeting. I think that's what it means. If you disagree or want to ask a question, put it on a blue slip, uh, and I'll answer a question on it next week. But the fact that that doesn't mean that doesn't negate the fact that 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 does say that women uh, can't speak uh, or sorry, preach in, in church uh, or have authority uh, over a man in church. So that's God's purpose for God's family. Lots of questions I'm imagining probably on blue slips at the end of that. But finally, and more briefly, God's purpose for our church family. God's purpose for our church family. What about us at Bethel? Well, we should seek to submit to Christ's authority. It would be a lot easier, really, to go along with the world, wouldn't it? And some surprising people have chosen that line to go down. I mean, why pick a fight here when there's so much other, thing, other things we could talk about? It's not central, is what they say. And in a sense, they're right, aren't they? It's not central. This isn't the, the fundamental truths of the gospel that we're talking about here. So why do we need to take a stand on this? Well, it's how you get there that's the problem. So as we, we look at people who have, have disregarded this teaching, how have they got there? Well, really, it's by disregarding bits of the Bible, because it's pragmatic or convenient. Uh, you know, society has moved this particular direction. Suddenly people find, oh, the Bible didn't really say what we thought it said. Uh, equally, though, we shouldn't just go back um, to what was said before uh, this big change in society happened. We shouldn't go back to uh, just going along with what the world thought then. We need to think things through carefully about what the Bible actually teaches, rather than just assuming that we had it right a hundred years ago uh, and we've got it wrong now. We need to look carefully and we shouldn't belittle women uh, within that. We shouldn't turn a blind eye to domestic abuse under the name of headship as sometimes happened in the past. Because actually, we'll get lumped in with these guys if we take the stand. We'll get lumped in with the misogynists who don't like women. And we need to be as vocal denouncing people who do those sorts of things as we are disagreeing with the more liberal voices in our society on the issue of women. We need to actually make sure that we're critiquing both sides so that we're not just getting lumped in with people who are, are disliking women. So where does the rubber hit the road for us? Well, just four things. What women shouldn't do. I think biblically from what we've seen in 1 Timothy 2 about exercising authority over a man, really we're saying that women shouldn't be elders because that involves authority over a, a man in a church setting. Now, I don't think that excludes women workers in terms of the people on staff can be involved in, in teaching women but I think in terms of the leadership of a church, that's exclusive to men. Secondly, it's to teach a mixed congregation. That's something that we shouldn't do. That's upfront teaching that we're talking about here. Not because women are incapable, but because women are told not to. It's not saying that women are less good at preaching. It's actually saying <clears throat> that women are to, to submit in those particular settings. And I think that includes the leading of a meeting. 
So the bit that we do before the preacher comes and speaks. Because leading applies authority. That's why we call it leading a meeting, don't we? But we don't have to go beyond that. We don't want to be Pharisees, do we? Looking for every loophole in our passages. But neither do we want to be legalists laying down rules that aren't there. So that's what women shouldn't do. Just those two things, really. Uh, Elders and teaching to a mixed congregation. Secondly, though, what should women do? Well, I would like to see every woman in this, this church involved in teaching ministry, either being taught or teaching. Uh, some churches have Titus 2 afternoons, where they sort of have an afternoon set aside a week where the women try and meet up uh, and teach one another. We want to not just allow women to teach in our church, we want to encourage you to teach, equip you to teach. So if you have ways that we can do that as elders, Mike and I, let us know. Ways that we can help you teach one another. And also we'd like to see women up front praying from January. Because I don't think we see that in in the Bible, that they, they can't pray up front. If you have an issue with that, or you'd like to be involved with that, do stick it on a blue slip uh, at the end. Uh, So that's what women shouldn't do and what women should do. What about men? What men shouldn't do? you go. Do not boss about women who are not your wife. Do not boss about women who are not your wife. The passages that we've seen do not give all men all authority over all women. That is not uh, what that says. And we should not give the impression that that is the case either. Now, there are leaders in our church over women, but they're leaders over the men as well. Uh, so if we boss the women around, we should boss the men around too, if, if we're going to be fair. So we shouldn't boss around uh, women who are not our wives. And I want to say, if you are married, do not boss about your wife either. What the Bible teaches is that men are to sacrificially lead. So don't tell her, don't insist on her cleaning your shoes, for example, which is where we started. Why don't you clean your own shoes and maybe wash her feet? Uh, I'm not talking foot massage here, but that's probably not a bad idea. What I mean is that men are to serve their wives. They're to love their wives. So lead her, but lead her sacrificially for the glory of God and for the wonderful picture of, of Christ that gives us. He washes our feet. When he died on the cross, he served us. And that's the model that we have. So that's what men shouldn't do. What should men do? Well, we should pray. We should be leaders in prayer.